Talks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. You're being preempted the last two Wednesdays. We're back. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Chris Hedges, co-director of the new documentary Unlocking the Cage, which tracks the legal quest by attorney Stephen Wise and his colleagues at the Non-Human Rights Project to establish personhood. Or chimpanzee. Hedges and her partner D.A. Pennebaker have been making documentary films for 40 years, including the Oscar-nominated movie The War Room, which examined Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. While Pennebaker is renowned as the filmmaker behind such 60 standouts as the Dylan flick Don't Look Back, Unlocking the Cage, which is screened at festivals and select theaters and will be broadcast on HBO in the coming months, follows Wise as he travels around visiting various captive chimps, strategizing with lawyers and advisors, and in courtrooms arguing before various judges. Last week I recorded a wide-ranging interview with Hedges, and we'll listen back to that interview in a few moments here on Talking Animals. Later, I'll air a brief conversation with Jamie McManus, a lawyer with the Orange Osceola State Attorney's Office, which just announced the creation of a unit earmarked to prosecute animal cruelty cases. The new unit involves 13 attorneys across both counties, with McManus having proposed the idea for the unit to State Attorney Jeff Ashton. Also later in the program, as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering tickets to see ukulele virtuoso Jake Shimabukuro at the Capitol Theater September 12th. In the background, in fact, I've been hearing Jake reimagining Adele. Right now, though, let's listen back to my interview with Chris Hedges discussing Unlocking the Cage, the new documentary she co-directed with D.A. Pennebaker, and an array of other topics, including some of their past films, how they selected Stephen Wise to be placed at the center of this new movie, some comments on the current presidential campaign, and more. Recorded last Wednesday, this is Chris Hedges on Talking Animals. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thank you. Happy to be talking to you. So I've had occasion in recent days to ponder the uh, Penny Baker Hedges filmography, and I guess I'm not telling you probably anything all that revelatory when I say it's difficult to sort of wrap your arms around that that body of work. I mean, it's it's pretty sprawling and certainly obviously a huge number of films about musicians and the majority involve pretty highly striking, charismatic figures in one realm or another. So it made me wonder what, what prompts you and, uh, and Mr. Penny Baker to say, yes, we're going to make a film about Bill Clinton's 92 presidential campaign or about Elaine Stritch or about 16 French pastry chefs engaged in a prestigious competition with all the stuff you've done, but with all the zillions of things that you could have done and decided maybe not to do. I mean, what is the criteria? Well, the criteria is usually that we're looking for someone uh, who's extremely passionate and talented, who is going to take some kind of life risk to pursue a goal and kind of follow them on that journey uh, in some way. And, you know, certainly it's been an eclectic ride from, you know, as you said, from electing a president to uh, doing a pastry chef competition <laughs> to yeah. our latest film that's on animal rights. Um, but, we, you know, we look for stories that are unfolding, that will happen in front of our camera and that have some kind of dramatic arc to them. And, um, you know, you don't know what way it's going to go, and it's, and it's always a risk, um, both on our part and the part of our subjects um, for us kind of following them around at this period of life because, you know, sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. So, um, you know, it's a journey for both of us. Sure. And how fluid is that criteria? Because, again, I think the basic sort of standard that you described here makes sense, but, again, it's encompassed so many kinds of things. Are there things that just personally at a given period in your guys' lives have been, well, that that's of interest to us, so let's kind of steer towards French pastry chefs or whatever it might be. I mean, there, there must be some other guiding principle besides just those basic ones that you've uh, outlined. Well, I ha- hate to kind of let this out, but it's really pretty simple where people who have seen one of our films quite often come to us 
and, you know, they have an idea or, you know, quite often they have access um, to a person or a subject and they think we would be interested in it and a good person to make a film about it. So, you know, a lot of the ideas and, and kind of people are brought to us by someone else, including when um, Penny did Don't Look Back with Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's manager came and asked uh, Penny if he'd be interested in, uh, you know, going on a tour with him. Uh, so, you know, in some ways it's that simple. Um, but, you know, we do, you know, choose them or not. I mean, if they interest us and we really think that there's, you know, some possibility of being able to fund this or get the type of access that we would need to do the story, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll start it in some way. And, you know, more often than not, we'll kind of get caught up in it and then, you know, really have to jump over hoops trying to figure out how to, to you know, stay stay alive yeah. <laughs> while we're making some adventure and raising money for it at the same time. Because most often things are happening pretty soon after somebody comes to talk to us. And, you know, we've been able to kind of jump right in and, and start these projects because we own camera, sound equipment, editing equipment, and we're also the people that, you know, shoot them. So, you know, we have that advantage. So it's all pretty self-contained, and it's not, uh, hey, that's a great idea. Give us six months while we assemble a, a team and the gear and everything else. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're ready to roll quickly. Which is something that people can do much more easily now than when we started. And, you know, the 16-millimeter film equipment was very exclusive at the time. Um, now, you know, you know, I suppose if you really wanted to, you could, you know, shoot the film on your phone. Right. As people do, in some cases. As people do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's just so interesting still that there's things that interest you guys. People come to you. But really, I mean, I know people who can be indecisive about what movie they want to see on a given night. And that's just a two-hour commitment. So, again, to make a documentary film usually obviously involves a number of years, even for a well-oiled operation like yours, where, again, you have the gear and you're ready to roll faster than, than most uh, operations. So I still have to believe these decisions are, are kind of huge and hugely important when you finally say, okay, this, this is it. This is our next film. Yeah, it's a commitment and it's a journey. And, you, you know, you're, it's kind of like detective work following a real-life story because you really don't know what's going to happen and you're always kind of trying to follow it and looking for clues and figuring out, you know, where to be, when, and making sure you're there to get the story in real life. Um, You know, and and it's difficult when people don't really want you around when things are going bad. And, you know, in in those cases, it's been really nice to have a partner and, and to make films through the decades with Penny Baker because then you have somebody, you know, to, you know, cry on their shoulder or just, you know, moan when people don't want you around. But, um, you know, later in the editing room, it's it's a much more artistic uh, part of the process. And, you know, that's a little more of a struggle for people to collaborate. So in a moment, I'd love to explore exactly in this case, then how you decided to make Unlocking the Cage in the new documentary about attorney uh, Stephen Wise and his quest in the courtroom to establish personhood for a chimpanzee. But to create a bit of context for that, can you tell me a, maybe a little about the decision to proceed with at least some of your films? And since we've already mentioned them, let's take, again, The War Room and maybe either Elaine Stritch or Pastry Chefs and just what things beyond just the basic criteria that you've outlined, what things really sort of said, okay, this we're going to proceed with these? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's usually meeting somebody along the way and just hearing them kind of express something. I mean, when we started to do The War Room, you know, our initial goal was to do um, a film about a man becoming president. Uh, in, you know, the process of that um, journey of kind of going through the different campaigns at that time, including Perot and Bush and the other Democrats that were running, um, it became clear that the only access we were really going to get in the end was not even to Bill Clinton, but to Bill Clinton's staff. And, you know, we thought, okay, well, if we get our foot in the door, you know, maybe they'll like us and, you know, they'll put us to Bill Clinton and he'll let us follow him around. But at the time, he had a journalist and a, and a still photographer following him, so he didn't really want to come crew. Although, you know, we filmed him somewhat during the campaign, but not enough to really get the type of story we were looking for. So when we looked within the campaign, uh, you know, we looked at you know, different people and what they were doing, and, and by far the most interesting person was James Carville. Mm-hmm. And there was something about James and George Stephanopoulos' relationship that had kind of a, uh, 
you know, a buddy relation that was just so respectful and so admiring of their talents, each of their talents that, um, you know, it seemed like, okay, this was, this was the right place to be in this kind of weird, you know, place that was being established both in the in the conventions and then later in Little Rock called the War Room. And, you know, the best thing about that was that nobody else wanted to be there. You know, there were no other press there. And, you know, that's something that you look for, too, as a documentary filmmaker is you want to have some kind of exclusive access to a story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we had the same thing, uh, you know, in Kings of Pastry where I had been introduced to um, chef uh, Jackie Pfeiffer from a friend of mine, Flora Lazar, who became a producer on the film. And, um, you know, right after I first met Jackie, I went to um, lunch with him and was filming him, and he started telling me about how his wife has to kind of wake him up every night because he has these nightmares that he's going to, you know, drop one of these huge sugar sculptures that they make at the competition. And you could just see that the anxiety was just so intense that this, competition meant so much to this person that you know there had to be a film there yeah well it's great with the way they just come from uh, just chatting with someone or an unexpected direction i mean it's one thing to to sort of chronicle a presidential campaign and veer off to to do the war room but um pastry chefs wouldn't be as obvious a topic uh, no matter how you slice it or balance it <laughs> but uh let me just first say this is talking animals of duncan's trust my guest is chris hedges who along with uh, her partner d.a penny baker has made a number of documentary films including the oscar-nominated war room which we just discussed and their new one unlocking the cage which tracks the quest by attorney stephen weiss and the Non-Human Rights Project to Establish Personhood for a Chimpanzee Diploma screened in select theaters and will air on HBO. This conversation was recorded last Wednesday. Let's see how how uh, Stephen Weiss entered the, the realm. Uh, wh- when did you first become aware of him? Uh, I think I was introduced to him in 2011 and uh, at the end of the year, and the same situation happened where a friend um, had met Steve through her brother who was in one of the law classes with Steve and um, this was Rosadel Varela mm. and uh, she also became a producer for me on the film and um, you know she told us about Steve and, and it was an animal rights story and just you know I almost think of it as being some kind of zen but you know we were looking around for another project and um, our we had a huge dog an Akita St. Bernard wow. dog he was our, our company mascot <laughs> He came with us to the office every day, and he had recently died. And, mm. and so this animal rights project walked in, and um, it just it seemed like the, the right thing to do. And so Steve came to our office, and he explained what he was going to try to do, which was that he was going to go into a court and argue that an animal of scientifically studied, highly cognitively complex animal like a chimpanzee or or whale, orca, or elephant um, had the capacity to be considered a legal person. And I had no idea exactly what that meant, but it was intriguing. And um, we really liked Steve, and we decided to go with him on his journey. And, um, you know, shortly after that, um, I went up with him to Harvard University, where he was teaching, and, um, you know, started to understand really more about his case. But I think, you know, similar to my experience with Jackie, uh, one of the things that Steve said to me right in the beginning when we were driving to Harvard was, you know, 30 years ago when he would walk into a courtroom, people used to bark at him. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, he was humiliated for decades. (laughs) And he still kind of persevered and had the passion to kind of see this idea through because he felt that animals should have some kind of more meaningful protections than they're given with, um, you know, welfare laws and statutes. I mean, you first heard about him, and then you met in the office. But did you meet in the office kind of, was that one of those things that, that were, where he was really seeking the opportunity for you guys to make a film about him, or was it just kind of coming in to shoot the breeze and kind of we'll see what happens from there, or was he really courting you even at the first meeting? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't don't I didn't get a sense that he was courting us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I thought we were kind of, you know, checking him out. Okay, more yeah. than or less. But in the end, I think really Steve was interested in yeah. having some filmmaker um, 
follow his story and, and um, see what he was going to do. I mean, he's uh, an eternal optimist, and, um, you know, he really, you know, hoped that, you know, something further would happen with what he was going to do and that people would be able to understand more about it if there was a film made about it. It's really interesting because, you know, I followed him for a while and I've, and I've interviewed him on the show a couple years, two or three years ago. And as someone at the center of a film, he, he isn't necessarily someone you would think of, especially if you say, well, yeah, this guy is not only an attorney, but a guy with a real unusual vision and mission, because he doesn't cut the figure of a slick, high-flying attorney. Um, and if I had a dollar for every time I've seen him described as rumpled, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think all your films and all his efforts would be paid for, probably. But but the thing is, he's he's very, uh, you know, as you say, he's very optimistic. He's very uh, sort of impish and, and witty and has this kind of quirky charisma. And, and one of the things I was really struck by that, that even if you knew about him or if you've interviewed him or whatever, you wouldn't have access to until seeing your film is that he's also, in addition to those things, seemingly at least, unruffled by, by bad news and bad breaks. He just seems very uh, even-handed. I mean, when uh, in a relatively short order, a couple of the chimps that they identify that they want to build their case around turn out to die. And in at least one case, there's a scene where uh, his colleague is notifying him that, and just she's predicting how just torn up he'll be he sounds at least like very philosophical about it and uh, i and i think a lot of other people be freaking out at that point but he just seems to uh, kind of roll with it and say well that's uh, not great news <laughs> or whatever he said but it's like so he just seems like a very interesting figure even if he's not again as, as striking or or dynamic as someone that you would think would be at the center of a of a you know feature-length documentary film i mean how did how did you end up feeling about him just in those ways, in terms of personality and other uh, attributes? Certainly, there were times I wish he would have started crying. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. Because, you know, there were so many challenges and, and hurdles over it. Um, but, you know, as you said, he has this kind of wonderful, self-deprecating, quirky humor. Yeah. And I think people really like that um, about him and that he is just... He's just so enthusiastic and passionate about it. I think, he, you know, he wins people over because he's kind of let, you know, himself be seen kind of raw. You, you see him struggling. You see him trying to put together a case. You see people um, criticize him. Um, but, um, you know, he, he, he kind of never loses his vision. Um, you know, I do admire that about him. And the film appears to span about three years how do you decide in any given case, including this one specifically, how much time to allot for a given film shoot where there isn't necessarily an end point, like an election uh, is obviously going to end in a, on a certain Tuesday in November or, or a contest is going to end on whatever day the contest culminates mm -hmm. or whatever. I mean, when doing a documentary about Stephen Wise and his sort of a quixotic uh, mission, with all these setbacks that we've so much we've talked about, and no specific tangible conclusion. I mean, we know what he's going for, but we don't know if he'll get there. We don't know how long it'll take and how many court proceedings. How did you determine when you would stop shooting? Well, I, I, I was rather naive, I think, about the law, which is kind of shocking and interesting because at this very moment, my daughter is taking the the New York law bar. Now. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> she decided to kind of change careers and, and, uh, and become a lawyer, but um, you know, I you know was never a person to watch Law and Order or any of those <laughs> shows. Uh, so yeah. you probably couldn't have been more stupid and naive than I was when I set out for this project. So I, I really thought there would be some kind of more concrete ending um, than there is. Um, and um, you know, it's interesting because it's it's the type of film as you know a lot of our stories are because they are about history. They're about real life and real time that you know it progresses and the endings are always evolving into some other part of of the story and the history of it and you know certainly that's the case with this film which started off you know i thought being kind of a simple story about this one chimpanzee merlin uh, that was in captivity and then kind of shortly before steve was going to file the case merlin dies and you know everything changed at that point and Steve decided to mount the case for any chimpanzee he could find in New York State and in the end he found um, 
chimpanzees in captivity, private captivity, as well as chimpanzees at Stony Brook University, part of the State University of New York. So the case expanded, you know, hugely, which was a real challenge for me as a filmmaker. But I think it made the story much more, much more interesting. Been obviously doing this a long time. I think you've been making films with uh, uh, Mr. Penny Baker for about 40 years or thereabouts. So how does it work? becoming, in some cases at least, maybe more than others, emotionally affected by the subjects of your documentaries? I mean, do you try to stave that off? Do you just sort of roll with that and just, I mean, I would think at least, uh, as, as in the wake of losing your beautiful dog mascot and just generally probably being a, somewhat of an animal person on some level, that some of the things that were part of the story and things that you were filming couldn't help but have some sort of emotional uh, kind of ripples along the way. I mean, I think to start off with, we don't do films, you know, where we take an adversarial role. Mm -hmm. We look for subjects of people that we are inspired by, at least at first. Yeah. Um, you know, you never know what it's going to be like. I mean, you know, your characters are human. They're not heroes. Yeah. And, um, you know, this evolves along the way, but that that's where we start from. We don't look for somebody that we think is villainous. So... Uh, On the flip side, maybe a little bit, were there things with some of those chimps and just some of the existence, like the really solitary existence of Tommy, for example, who cooped up in this guy that well, I guess was his owner, for lack of a better term at the moment, you know, had him set up with a TV and like a mural or wall decorations of a jungle, and this, this was to pass for enrichment. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I think even some of the people that are in the film uh, Steve and, and Natalie and some others were, were on the verge of tears just thinking about and, or just reporting back on what that was like. And there was a little detail there, by the way, that I thought, because Tommy's watching this TV, and I guess it's PBS the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, but at one point in the scene, he's watching Curious George, which yeah. somehow really got to me just as an extra something or other. So... Um, but yeah, so I guess I mean those things where there's some fairly sad things. I mean, we were at Save the Chimps, and, and the woman, the, the executive director there, is showing uh, Steve the um, the kind of cage enclosures that the Colson people used to use. I mean, some of that stuff is either directly or indirectly, well, I would think, uh, poignant and, and a little bit uh, difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, you know, when I started the film, um, I wasn't interested in showing abuse. Uh, I really wanted to show why these animals deserved to be legal persons. I wanted to show how amazing they were, how cognitively complex they were. So for me in the beginning, you know, going to visit Kanzi, who was the bonobo who had been taught to use um, a computer yeah. set of symbols um, to communicate, or going to see Tattoo, who was one of the early chimpanzees that were taught to communicate with American Sign Language. I mean, that those parts of the film process were some of the most interesting to me and you know, some of the most life-changing. Uh, when you're around other higher beings that can communicate in that way, um, it's, you, know, you can't go backwards. Your lives are changed forever. Um, but, uh, you know, you, the film was about chimpanzees that were kept in abusive situations. And, you know, I didn't want to villainize really some of the people who were owning them that we filmed in private captivity. Um, you know, I understand that it's it's a process, and a lot of these people rescued them from probably even worse situations at the time, and that um, situations for chimpanzees have, have evolved. And, you know, now we have sanctuaries, and now we understand a lot more about them. Um, but it was definitely... Uh, heartbreaking to see them in solitary confinement. And again, some of them aren't, you wouldn't even, if, if you were seeking to villainize them, you wouldn't necessarily get very far because some of them, I mean, part of the very difficulty of this of this realm is that some of them are very attached, very, think they're doing totally right by the chimps and don't, and as we even see in the film, in some cases, sort of shocked and offended at, at the notion that people would suggest that they have anything but the animal's best interest at heart, which is interesting just by itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's, you know, that's part of the story. I mean, we brought chimpanzees into this country, um, you know, about 60 years ago, and they were used in, you know, all sorts of things, um, you know, from the entertainment business to... Um, you know, psychological research of different kinds to understand 
our beginnings as primates, as because we are primates as well, right. um, to being used as you know some of the first um, beings that were used in the space program and did some of the most important parts of that research for us. Yeah. Uh, again, this is Talking Animals and Duncan Strauss. My guest is uh, Chris Hedgetus, Oscar-nominated filmmaker who co-directed most recently Unlocking the Cage, which tracks the legal quest by attorney Stephen Wise and the Non-Human Rights Project to establish personhood for a chimpanzee. The film is slated to air on HBO. This conversation was recorded last Wednesday. So once, Chris, the, the exposure of the film broadens out, airing on HBO maybe in particular, what do you imagine the impact will be? I mean, I hope that this will be one of, you know, the many films that have come out recently, like Blackfish or The Cove, uh, that are highlighting, you know, how we've been treating animals and uh, why we shouldn't do that anymore and why we should change things. And, you know, I hope it'll encourage uh, people to kind of look at why they should have further rights um, and why a lot of these laws that we're passing as legislation aren't quite enough for animals um, to be fundamentally protected, to have meaningful protections in the same way as we have meaningful protections. Yeah, that's certainly another element that kind of courses through the film is, at least in the preparation for some of those hearings, the Non-Human Rights Project team is sort of concerned that people say, well, there are welfare laws or there are things on the books. Why, why aren't you just taking it in that direction? And, and so they're anticipating that and trying to prepare to steer it in the direction that they're really trying to go, which is something quite different. Yeah, uh, I know. Right to actually in Florida, um, Lolita, who's an orca who's been yeah. <laughs> in a bathtub for decades, and animal activists have, have tried to free her in some way and put her in a better situation. It was just the subject of a case that was based on the new Endangered Species Act. And uh, this new act had been used, I think it was in Iowa, for a tiger that was kept in abusive captivity. And activists really documented his captivity in a way and showed it to a judge who agreed that his captivity was abusive and um, ordered that it be changed. And the same kind of precedent was tried to be used for Lolita, but um, the judge said Lolita wasn't abused enough. I don't know where that line is drawn exactly, especially if you know anything about Lolita's story. But, well, all I can assume is people are just going to keep trying, and just as we see with Stephen Weiss. I mean, he's been doing this for 30-some-odd years and, again, has this kind of indomitable spirit and just going to keep going. And um, and Yeah, well, for me, it, it shows, you know, why there is need for some kind of right, because these other, you know, acts and statutes, you know, just aren't giving them the type of fundamental protection that they deserve. And it, I think it's especially critical, the, one of the core elements of Stephen's strategy is to really focus on a select kind of few animals, including orcas, uh, speaking of lowly apes and, and elephants, which are particularly near and dear to my heart, and so that hopefully at least uh, for a guy who got barked at when he went in the courtroom uh, you, you know, years ago, the idea that you, know, you couldn't immediately sort of reduce this to, okay, what's next? I think someone even talked about in your film, somebody's going to file a case about the chickens or whatever, which, <laughs> I mean, that's all well it's and good. It's a slippery slope. But, yeah, but there is something to be said for these particular animals with have demonstrated those kind of cognitive abilities, and therefore that's probably the way to, to, to make your case and build your case around their, their what's been demonstrated that these animals are capable of. So, um, yeah. All right, well, just to cut another little question or two, Chris, that doesn't necessarily have anything directly to do with unlocking the cage, but with your having made the war room, and now we're recording this conversation sort of at the midpoint of the DNC, I'd be interested to hear any observations you might have on the, either the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign and or the Donald Trump presidential <laughs> campaign. Well, like everyone, I, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating election year. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm hoping obviously that Hillary will become our next president. I think she's incredibly qualified and you know, I think it's, you know, it's been interesting. I think the Bernie supporters have brought up a lot of really important, crucial um, 
issues, and yeah. I think that um, you know Hillary is really listening to them, and I'm, and you know I appreciate that very much. Um, but uh, I think it's going to be a big fight. Yeah. Um, and you know, I still think that, and I know people always criticize for playing, you know, for talking about the women card or whatever. But I think there is a lot of ingrained sexism in this country, and um, I think a lot of the way that Hillary is being criticized and, um, you know, the name-calling is the basis of a lot of um, sexism. Mm-hmm. And, and more than a little misogyny along the way, too. Mm-hmm. No, it's very interesting, and, and even the way some of the, there were some subsections of the Bernie supporters, the Bernie bros, as they were called, that um, seemed to have uh, a little little of that going on as well. And uh, Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, there's certainly at least one or two films probably that could have been made uh, or even still could be made about this thing, but, but some of them might turn out to be horror films, as, uh, as we're seeing. But... Uh, Elections and trials and things like that, I guess, and, and contests, uh, I guess, just have an inherent sense of um, drama and uh, and some, you know, way more drama than anybody even bargained for, I guess. So. <laughs> and certainly this, work, this year is definitely yeah. going to be like that. That's for sure. So uh, so thank you so much. So we've been speaking with uh, Chris Hedgetus. Again, the, the, the film is Unlocking the Cage. It has its own website, unlockingthecagethefilm.com. The Hedgetus Penny Baker website is phfilms.com. And again... Um, Unlocking the Cage is slated to be airing in a not-too-distant future on HBO. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Chris Hedgetus. And keep an eye out if you're an HBO person for a more specific screen date for Unlocking the Cage. In a moment, we'll hear my uh, brief conversation with Jamie McManus, Lord of the Orange the state attorney's office, which recently created a unit specifically designed to prosecute animal cruelty cases. McManus has prosecuted some tough cases in this realm, and she proposed the idea of the unit to state attorney Jeff Ashton. Right now, it's time to step into the common corner with a nod to Stephen Wise's efforts to establish personhood for a chimp. This is Kevin Nealon with a piece called Chimp Fear in today's Comedy Corner. I'm talking. I used to be afraid of sharks, but not anymore. I'm not afraid of, I'm not afraid of, well, actually, you know what? I take that back. I'm afraid of chimps, chimpanzees. I mean, have you been reading about these horrific chimp attacks? I'm not talking about the cute little chimpanzees with the sweater vest and the uh, suspenders. I'm talking about the big strength of four grown men, chimpanzees. And I don't know how they measure that, four grown men. Maybe they start with one grown man. You know, hey, get, get in the cage with that chimp. Let's see who's stronger. Whoa, whoa! Okay, two grown men. Hurry up. Two grown men. Two grown men. You know, until they get to four. And it costs six lives for that study. I hope they wrote it down. I hope they have it written down somewhere. But yeah, these chimps. And call them chimps. Not pansies. They don't like that. But they rip your face off, and then they go for the crotch. They, they, that's, what, that's their MO. It's in a Chimp 101 handbook. That's what they do. They get your jaw out so you can't bite them. And then they go for the crotch. I guess so you can't sex them or something. I don't know what they're thinking. But, um, yeah, it is not good. So now, when I go swimming in the ocean, I have to watch out for sharks and chimpanzees. I don't want to be too close to the shore where the chimp can reach in and pull me out. But I don't want to be too far out where the sharks are. Or worse yet, further out where the Somalian pirates are. You see, for me, when I stand in front of the ocean, there's different spheres of fear for me. It's the chimp, shark, Somalian pirates, and North Korea. Further out, North Korea. Different spheres of fear. But let me tell you something. At least with a shark attack, it's quick. You know, it just pulls you down. There's no drama. Hey, what that's all your friends are going to hear, if that. They're like, where's Kevin? I don't know. I think he's at the snack bar. Throw me the Frisbee, Jack. But with a chimpanzee attack, can you imagine the horror? It probably sneaks up behind you on a little tricycle. Then at the last minute, the horn on the handlebar, and then boom, face crotch. And then they fling the feces at you. That's that's how they tidy it all up. They fling the feces at you. And if that doesn't do it, they back over you with that tricycle a couple of times, you know? And you can't play dead with a chimpanzee because they see right through that. They just get angry because you're a bad actor. That's not dead. I'll show you dead. But who do you play dead with? You know, I guess bears. Bears... 
but for how long? How long when they're batting you against a rock like a salmon? When you finally go, okay, already, I'm not dead. All right, take it easy. You don't play dead with a vulture because that's what they want. They want you dead. They'll be pecking at your face and ripping pieces of meat off. They don't care. You don't play dead with a possum, that's for sure. You waste the time, you'll both be on the street. Are you dead? I'm dead too. Yeah, we're both dead. Oh, oh, I saw you move your tail. I saw you move your tail. You're not dead. You're not dead. <laughs> In some animals, they say, make yourself look big. You know, size-wise, not important-wise. Like, hey, don't you know who I am? You don't know who I am? I could have your job. Don't you understand that? So, yeah, that's all scary. Those are close calls right there. That was Kevin Nealon with a piece called Chimp Fear, taken from his album Whelmed, but not overly. In a moment, I'll play back the brief interview I recorded just about an hour ago with Jamie McManus of the Orange Osceola State Attorney's Office, which just announced the formation of a unit devoted to prosecuting animal cruelty cases. But first, let's have an animal song, and a new animal song at that end, on top of those things... It ties into a forthcoming WMNF show, by which I'm referring to on uh, September 29th, Parker Millsap and Sarah Geras will be uh, holding forth at Skipper's in a benefit for WMNF. And uh, Sarah Geras, who we've long loved here at WMNF, has a great new album out, on which there is a, a, a terrific animal song. It might actually be operating on a more metaphorical level, but I'm not bright enough to really discern that. So let's hear that right now. It's Sarah Jaross with Lost Dog here. I'm talking in. Thank you. 
That was Sarah Dross with Lost Dog. And again, she will be performing September 29th at Skipper's on a bill with Parker Millsap in benefit for WMNF. Tickets and information at WMNF.org. Let's proceed now with my brief interview recorded this morning with Assistant State Attorney Jamie McManus here on Talking Animals. So let's uh, welcome to Talking Animals, uh, Jamie McManus. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals, Jamie. Thanks for having me. So I was quite impressed when I read about the creation of the new uh, Animal Cruelty Unit. Good news for the animals, certainly. Tell me uh, how it came about. Well, uh, as you may have heard from the press release, I was working on a dogfighting case that had about 26 co-defendants. It involved reviewing a lot of discovery and uh, affidavits. And in the process of working that case, I came to realize that there may be a need for this type of unit. What what specific case or cases kind of inspired your uh, uh, thinking? in that direction? Well, the dogfighting case um, was the first case. uh, And in that case, I happened to receive a call from another jurisdiction's animal services advising me that actually someone from my case was involved in an incident in their jurisdiction. Uh, Then I received an email from another prosecutor about a case that she was working And it had a lot of the same earmarks as far as what I was seeing in the the original case that I had. So it seemed to me, based on what I was seeing and hearing, that there may be an issue with dogfighting. And then that also leads to questions about, you know, issues with animal cruelty in general. And are there uh, counterparts to this uh, new unit that was created in, in other counties or other parts of the country that you're aware of? Yes. Actually, um, there are other district attorney's offices throughout the country who have formed animal cruelty units. Um, In addition, I believe the 12th Circuit here in Florida has an animal cruelty unit in uh, their office. So there is some history to this, and I assume that there's been, in whatever way that that's measurable, uh, some significant differences in the way that those cases can be prosecuted. Well, you know, as prosecutors, we have to look at every case fair and impartially and evaluate the case from kind of a a distance uh, and and not be personally involved. And, you know, that's important, especially in these types of cases. Um, So, yes, there are differences in how this type of case would be prosecuted versus where you have a live victim who can speak because of the evidence involved. Um, But as far as, you know, our duties as prosecutors, all of these cases are going to be prosecuted in the same way as uh, traditional cases with human victims. Sure. I guess what I was trying to suggest more is that now with that sort of dedication to animal cruelty with the creation of the unit, it would seem like there'll be, I would think, at least more focus and more cases perhaps and maybe more effective prosecution of those cases than prior to the creation of the unit. I would tend to agree with that because now we're going to have prosecutors who, when they get an animal cruelty case, it's not the first time they've seen that type of evidence or encountered the type of issues that one would encounter in an animal cruelty uh, case. Uh, So in that way, you know, I guess the old adage rings true, practice makes perfect. So the more cases like this we see the better we would get at prosecuting them. Notice that, if I have this correct, uh, Jamie, that there are 13 attorneys in this newly created unit. Is that right? That's correct. And also, if I'm not mistaken, those 13 attorneys volunteered to be part of the unit, which I think makes for extra caseload, which means extra work for already very busy attorneys. Yes. Um, you know, but right now we're not getting a lot of these cases in um, – I believe we ran the numbers earlier in the year, a couple of months ago, and so far this year, our office has only received, in Orange County, I believe, 44 uh, cases of animal cruelty. So you divide that up among 13 prosecutors, 
we're not adding too much to our caseload. No, I just still think it's uh, it's admirable that as busy as everybody probably is with whatever their regular caseload is, that they're saying, hey, I'm signing up to take more as as they come across the desk. So, And what sort of cases do you chiefly anticipate will constitute the new unit's focus? Because I, I would think that although you just said there's, there's been the 44, that will this also, the creation of the unit also mean there'll be um, – you think a greater uh, effort or ability to pursue some of these cases that may or may not have gotten the office's either attention or resources prior to the creation of the new unit? I think that's certainly a possibility. I think that once law enforcement realizes that the state attorney's office, namely you know Jeff Ashton, is taking these cases seriously, uh, they'll be more willing to bring us the cases. So we may see a rise in the number of cases that we're getting on a yearly basis um, and hopefully we'll be more effective in our prosecution of them. And speaking of uh, State Attorney uh, Ashton, so when you kind of first proposed this to him, what was his, was he immediately uh, responsive or did he say, hey, let me think about it or how did that, how did that go from when you first kind of proposed the idea? No, he was immediately open and very responsive to the idea. Um, I, even from the very beginning, I, I think I kind of laid the seed right after the trial on the Apopka dogfighting case uh, that there is an issue that might be addressed with, you know, a special unit of prosecutors. And I, I followed that up later with, you know, a more formalized proposal, and he was immediately receptive to it. That's great. And uh, I guess uh, one question, I know you said the attorneys really can't get sort of too personal or too personally involved in the cases they're uh, pursuing or prosecuting. But to what extent are, are you an animal person? I, I love animals. Yeah. Um, why would you not? Right. Well, and I, I can only assume that the, that your dozen uh, colleagues that, that have uh, volunteered for this unit likewise must be, to varying degrees at least, animal people. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, again, this was uh, really kind of an inspiring, uh, exciting thing to see. It just feels like there's uh, more people kind of looking out for our animal friends as a result of this. So uh, I'm glad you proposed the idea, and I'm glad you took a moment or two to speak with us today on Talking Animals. Thank you very much, Jamie. For having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Our thanks again to Assistant State Attorney Jamie McManus, and uh, also our thanks to Angela Stark in that office as well. This is Talking Animals. Coming up at 11 on WNF, it's Rob Lorai and Radioactivity. Rolling into the noon hour constitutes a full two hours of interviews, phone calls, news, and more with contributions from members of the stellar WMNF staff, including, of course, Everyday Ethics with Craig Kopp. Meanwhile, the prize for Name That Animal Tune will be offering a pair of tickets to see Ukulele with Jake Shimabukuro September 12th at the Capitol Theater. Right now, let's do one or two... Uh, Items from the Animal News and Announcements Department. Just locally here, in fact, this was in today's edition of TBT. Just read a little bit of it in a piece by uh, Tracy McManus. No relation to Jamie, as far as I know. An ongoing legal standoff over transparency of finances at Suncoast Primate Sanctuary has left it unclear who actually runs the facility and has potentially contributed to the death of at least one monkey, according to court records. The Palm Harbor Sanctuary has had the same three-member board of trustees since it opened in 2003 as a reincarnation of Noel's Ark Chimp Farm, which was shut down, shut down in 1999 amid federal animal welfare violations. But when trustees Nancy Nagel and Christy Holly began asking their counterpart, John Cobb, the treasurer, for access to the financial records in April, Nagel said he refused. Nagel said she and Holly voted on May 31st to remove Cobb from the board, a process outlined in state law for removing directors. But two weeks later, at an emergency meeting, membership meeting, Cobb was reinstated and Nagel and Holly were replaced. The story goes on from there. Again, that's in today's edition of TBT. I'm sure you can find it online. Monkey death adds to sanctuary troubles. And hear this periodically, and this was, uh, I thought, a particularly good piece on this in the Washington Post Animalia column. Headline, Why Breeding Bulldogs is Borderline Inhumane. It starts off Bulldogs World, a website devoted to the jolly breed, cites a stunning figure amongst its frequently asked questions. More than 90% of bulldog puppies are delivered by cesarean section. That's because the puppies have such enormous heads that they can't fit through the mother's birth canal, and that's just the beginning of bulldog medical woes. Birth defects, such as flat chest, have led to high puppy mortality. A skeletal disorder common to the breed causes high rates of hip dysplasia. 
Bulldogs wrinkly faces beget acne and eye problems. Their underbites often mean dental troubles. But the biggest issue is their smushed brachycephalic faces, large palate, and narrow nostrils, visages their wolf ancestors might not even recognize as canine. They can cause a bulldog to pant like mad while exercising, slobber like a fountain while resting, choke and gag while eating, suffer from heat stroke, and to top it off, have unusually wicked flatulence. So the story goes on from there, but again, excellent piece by uh, Karen Bullard there in the Washington Post, I think it was official, posted yesterday, but I think it's in today's edition of the paper. All right, let's carry on now. I'm Duncan Strauss. You are listening to Talking Animals, where the show website is talkinganimals.net. It's time to proceed to name that animal tune. This is a giveaway, but please only participate if you haven't won something from WNF in the last 90 days. There'll be a prize, a pair of tickets to see Jake Shimabukuro September 12th at the Capitol Theater to the first person who calls 813-239-963 and correctly identifies this animal song. Let's name that animal tune. I'm talking animals. We might have at least one guest right off the bat. Let's see. Hi, you're on Talking Animals. You're on the air. Can you name that animal, Tim? Hello? Hi, you're on the air. Can you name that animal, Tim? Gracie. Yay! Okay, what is your first name? Rebecca. Okay, Rebecca, I'm going to put you on hold, and you are correct, and you've won the ticket. Stand by. Thank you. All right, I'm Duncan Strauss. Just about reaching of today's edition of Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. Rob Lore is up next. What amounts to two hours of radioactivity. I'll be back next Wednesday. Meanwhile, I hope you visit TalkingAnimals.net where you can find audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. iTunes Podcast 2. We also have a link to the Talking Animals Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and more. Please like us on Facebook, the show, and, uh, and more importantly, in some ways, me personally. And follow us on Twitter. You can also subscribe to our newsletter to find about guests a couple of days before and other news from the Talking Animals world. That's all found at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Trust. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. We'll catch up with you next Wednesday at 10 a.m. On Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wiki Wachi, and beyond. Community Conscious Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Take care.